Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sad Me of the Past, where we invite an established writer to revisit a piece they wrote in their tender years. That piece may fill them with affection, regret, nostalgia, embarrassment, relief, delight, anguish, all of the above, or something else entirely. Every infant must take those early, brave, awkward steps when learning to walk. We writers must make our own early, brave, awkward efforts as we set out to master our craft. So let's travel back to that ancient time when we were bursting with hubris or scared to death, drunk with language or paralyzed by it, determined to become a writer or terrified that we didn't have the stuff. I'll show them, we thought. But what did we show, really, and to whom? So this is part two of the inaugural episode of uh, Sad Me of the Past. Uh, I'm Stephen Lovely, director of the Iowa Young Writers Studio. I'm Lauren Haldeman, senior editor of the Writing University. And I'm Danny Kalachi, and I direct the Magid Center for Writing. We are here today in part two with Vinny Wilhelm. Uh, I'm going to introduce Vinny, uh, and then we're going to jump into the show. Vinny Wilhelm graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop in 2004. He's published a collection of short stories entitled In the Absence of Predators. And currently, he lives in Los Angeles, where he has written for a bunch of TV shows, including Manhattan, The Terror, Castle Rock, and Penny Dreadful. Vinny, welcome back to Iowa City, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Danny. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so before we jump in, quick question. Uh, talk, to us a little about, uh, talk to us a little bit about your connection to Iowa City. Iowa City is my favorite place in the entire universe. <laughs> I came here to go to school when I was impossibly young, uh, and I just felt immediately when I got here like I, I found my people, found my tribe, and uh, that was an a extremely um, profound experience for me. Uh, and it was so profound, in fact, that I made it my uh, mission to come back every summer. I got the greatest job in the history of jobs, which was working as a counselor. Iowa Young Writers Studio, which Stephen directs and has directed for almost 20 years almost now. 20. Woo. Yeah. Woo. And every summer I had the pleasure of coming back to this town and living in uh, Courier Hall, sometimes Burge, and uh, I got to hang out with these incredible young high school writers who were so much cooler and more evolved than I had been at their age. My fellow counselor was the handsomest Iraqi-American Jew in all of West Des Moines, <laughs> Daddy Kalachi. And uh, it was just every single year, I just felt like the, the batteries of my spirit would slowly run down over the course of uh, the fall, the winter, the spring, and I would just come crawling back with my last ounce of strength to Iowa City to have all of my creative energies renewed by <laughs> being with the young writers and being with... Uh, Danny and Steven and seeing incredible artists like Lauren Haldeman around town and just being in, uh, in, in, under the sway of this, this magical place. And now I come back whenever I can to teach a little bit or just hang out or, you know, I have kids, I have things in Los Angeles that are hard to get away from, um, so I don't make as much as I would like to, but I aspire always to come back here. Well, it's always such a huge pleasure to see you, man. It really is. Oh, thanks, and now Dan. my spirit runs down every year, and camp brings it back up. It just is a yearly thing for me. It's yeah. been 20 years of that. Yeah. I only stopped coming <laughs> to camp because I started having children. I had that job <laughs> as a counselor for 10 yeah. summers. Yeah, you guys were stalwarts. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Vinny, maybe you can sort of set the scene for us a little bit. Tell us what you're going to read today and give us a little bit of context. When did you write it? Where were you? How old were you? I wrote this when I was in the eighth grade. Uh, I was living in Santa Barbara, California. I'm originally from New Haven, Connecticut. Moved to Santa Barbara when I was 10. I wrote this in the eighth grade when I was 13. Uh, it was absolutely the nadir of my uh, adolescent, mid-pubescent, horror show of a life. I just had gigantic Jersey mall honey hair. I had enormous dental work, like brackets the size of a, the hood ornament from an 86 Buick. I mean, just horrifying. Skin wasn't good. And I was just very um, uncomfortable in, in myself, I think, at this time in my life. Um, 
I was going to uh, a, a wonderful sort of hippie-ish private little middle school that um, protected me to some degree from the vicissitudes of fate. Uh, <laughs> but it was a time that I remember um, with some trepidation um, because I think that, yeah, I mean, I guess everybody has a certain amount of um, posing at that time but I feel like I just had so much of it. <laughs> and some of which is gonna uh, may, maybe come out in the work, I don't know. This, this is a, a novel that I wrote. It's not as long as some novels. <laughs> it's called Spam, which for those of you who don't know, before it was uh, an unwanted, impersonal email choking up your inbox, it was a meat product. <laughs> a meat product uh, made by the Hormel company in Minnesota that um, was very cheap and not very good. Salty. It's salty. It's sort of a ham derivative. It was created during World War II, um, I believe. And that, that's what the, the novel is about, spam, hence the title, Spam. Can you uh, describe the look of, of the object on the table in front of you? No. Uh, Not really. I mean, it's it's my mother had it bound in this plastic ring binder. We'll put pictures on that. And there's sort of this, uh, this. I had an Apple IIgs computer in the closet of the family room in my house on which I produced this sort of, I don't know, like I used some sort of a painting program to make this somewhat abstract cover, which features, amazing. features the title, it features my name, and then it features... <laughs> A blurb. A blurb. <laughs> a blurb. <laughs> but it's not, I didn't really understand, I guess, what a blurb was, because the blurb is, you are about to enter a realm not of sight and of sound, but of mind and of shadow. You are about to enter the Twilight Zone. Whoa. <laughs> Rod Serling. That's just a quote. That's like not the, a blurb. It's like a blurb, but it's also it's the like back matter. It's like the log line. But it's not. It's not. That's very relevant, what you said, Dave. It is the log I'm line of another you've show. I'm been sued, yeah. Yeah, I just, I feel like there <laughs> so many aspects of my character and literary approach at that time that were sort of just... Uh, taking other people's ideas and <laughs> dressing them up in a like pencil thin fake mustache. So um, before so oh, I so. wish that was how blurbs worked. But yeah. Vinny, I noticed there's a back cover as well. Yeah. Well that's really hard to describe. <laughs> it, it's it's there's two rows, two uh, vertical rows of names um, of sort of major figures of twentieth century culture. Uh, you know, uh, Thatcher, Fonda, Yogi, Gandhi, Chaplin, Owens, Thorpe, Brezhnev, Brando, Manson, Mao, Rosenberg, on and on and on. Uh, two columns, probably about 50 names each, and at the bottom, in boldface type, it says, Spam. This is the Dramatis Personae? Is that what, who these are? Kind of. I mean, the premise of the novel, should I say that up front? Sure, yeah. The premise of the novel is that the, the imitation meat, Spam, is the locus of a vast international conspiracy that has been unfolding throughout the 20th century and sort of explains the entire state of the world, circa 1991, when this was written. And the nature of the conspiracy, should I say the nature of the conspiracy? It's up to you, Yeah, I mean, I we're guess. not going to read this we're book. Not, Lord, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I'm not. Shut I'm your not, mouth, Lauren I'm not going to read spam. <laughs> The nature of the conspiracy, Lauren, for all the rest of you who aren't going to read my work, is that, uh, you know, spam was very low cost. That was sort of the origin of it. It's got protein, it's like meat, but it's very cheap. And the truth that is uncovered in the, in the throw of the story is that it has been injected with little um, genetically engineered thingamabobs that, um, and forgive me, this is a little dated, they block uh, testosterone. In men and women, which has, um, in the scientific understanding of me at that age, <laughs> the effect of making everybody who ingests this meat more docile. So it's essentially, it's a plan to keep the poor people down. 
But it's very timely in terms of like conspiracies to inject things into the body sure. and you know to have control and you, people have called me a prophet. Steve. Well, <laughs> so I so I have I have one question before you read. Just I, can you give us just like what where did you write this? Mm. Where did you you know were you did you write in your house in your room? Did you have a desk? Did you write in your bed? Like were you wearing the trench coat when you wrote this? Uh, or I just, didn't have the trench coat yet. Okay, I, okay. I, I only got the trench coat a few years later when I finally got a job. I had okay. money to buy that trench coat. Okay. Which I gotta tell you, it wasn't very cheap. Okay. <laughs> I wrote at this time on my Apple II GS computer, which was in the closet in the family room. Uh, with so I would write with I put a baseball game on, write with my back to the television, and um, I think that I had uh, like a very schizophrenic relationship to uh, writing and the idea of writing at that time. I was sort of attached to it, but also I was sort of entering this phase, which had a lot to do with puberty and sort of ideas about masculinity where I began progressively to conceal the fact that I liked to read or was smart or had any ideas about anything. And I think that a lot of my character was formed in the, um, in the, the burying of those impulses and the active attempt to become more terrible. <laughs> Not terrible, just to conform. What I really wanted, what I wanted so deeply at that age, was to be cool in the boringest possible way. And I just, um, it pains me to think back on that because it was very misguided. I mean, it's that's such a core to that age and it's such an impossible task. Like, it should be easy. I remember thinking, like, this should be easy. I remember getting a book out of the library that was How to Talk to Girls. Uh, it was meant for boys, but I, uh, I also needed to know how to talk to girls. <laughs> because they were... Um, They're everywhere. They were everywhere, and they were <laughs> absolutely mysterious. And I just could not get in with the right, like, girl group, the right group of friends. And... I don't know about you, but when I arrived in Iowa City, I loved what you said about Iowa City. Like, like landing here was the first time I felt normal. Oh, yeah. First of all, I wish you had told me that book existed at, at this age. <laughs> How to talk to girls. <laughs> me too. But no, uh, you're totally right. That, and that was the experience I had when I got here. I, I think it was like the first step in a very long journey back to some version of myself that is not stupid. Uh, but it, and I think that's why I loved working at the Young Writers Studio for all those years because I saw these kids yeah. who, as I said, were more involved than me to begin with. But they were having that experience at the age when I needed to have it and had not had it. Mm. And it was just always to me so beautiful to to see that and to get the the privilege of being witness to that and being part of it. It's just I loved it so much. That makes me so happy to hear, Benny. Um, well, I think if you'd be willing, I think we'd love to hear you read Spam. Okay. I'm just going to start reading from the beginning. I can't wait to hear <laughs> Okay. It's a tough world. It's no secret. you got to look out for yourself 24 hours a day. Nobody's going to do it for you. Nobody. you got to sleep with one eye open and still get your rest. You gotta be Mother Teresa one day and Fidel Castro the next. And you can't slip up, not once. You only get one pitch from this thing they call life and you've gotta hit it, just one. You haven't got a chance to see how the game's played. Just one pitch and you've gotta hit it, hard. The words flashed through the mind of Brooks MacArthur and he <laughs> knew them to be true. He sat calmly on the log cabin's porch and attempted to take in the beauty around him. His thoughts turned to childhood, adolescence, and now to the task at hand, his quest, and what might happen any moment now, and still he waited. He'd flown halfway around the world to be here, in the mountains on the southeastern edge of the Tibetan plateau, and now all he could do was wait. It wouldn't be long now. Another five minutes passed before a solitary figure appeared from the woods. It came within 200 yards and stopped, apparently seeing MacArthur for the first time on the shadowy porch. MacArthur! <laughs> a male voice shouted. The man's hand reached to his hip, and the glint of the mid-morning sun off the barrel of a revolver flashed in MacArthur's eyes. But he still managed to squeeze off a shot before the man in the meadow could fire. 
The mysteriously violent villain let out a high-pitched scream as the bullet tore through the palm of his hand. He stared at the gaping hole for a moment before a second bullet slammed into his knee. Brooks MacArthur rose steadily and set out across the meadow, gun cocked. The figure, kneeling in the grass, tried to crawl away, but he could not move effectively. MacArthur reached him, cast a heavy hand on his shoulder, and steadied the shaking man. Where is it? MacArthur asked calmly. The man would not reply. Where is it? MacArthur's tone was more insistent, but it drew no response. There's two ways to do this, MacArthur continued. The easy way and the hard way. Now I'll ask you one more time, and then I get nasty. Where is the secret spam factory located? <laughs> Who runs it? Suddenly the man drew his good hand to his face and slipped something into his mouth. A thick white foam poured out. The body grew limp and MacArthur dropped it to the ground. Cyanide, <laughs> he muttered with frustration. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. I love that Mother Teresa doesn't really date it, but Fidel Castro does <laughs> <laughs> at the very beginning. Yeah. He was a very bad man back in the 90s, kids. So when you when you read this now, or when you first encountered it in recent times, you know, after however many years, like what you know, what do you feel when you read it? Mm. Or I mean, you already talked a little bit about you know yeah. sort of what you were going through, but like, what do you what what jumps out for you? Well, I just feel um, I mean, so derivative of the stuff I was reading, you know, uh, which I was really into Raymond Chandler. I was really in to the noir, both uh, books and also the movies. Loved Humphrey Bogart, loved The Big Sleep, loved Casablanca, um, Key Largo, uh, all those movies. And um, I, but I think what I loved about them that is reflected in this is just this sort of uh, pose of masculinity yeah. that, um, you know, I think was exactly what I didn't feel like. And I think I was thinking about this because I read this for the first time yesterday in many, many years. And, you know, I think part of it um, is, is just like a deep discomfort with sexuality and a fear around sexuality. Because I mean, the thing about Marlowe in those books and in those movies is that like women totally want him. So it's like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to wonder like uh, oh is he into chicks or whatever like they, they they're all throwing themselves at him all the time proving that he's cool and he's virile and he's potent and all this stuff but he never actually does anything with any of them he's kind of above it and i think to me at that time i just both really wanted women to be interested in me not even because I mean, I was just having all the stuff adolescents have, but I think part of it was just to reassure myself that I was like, yeah, I'm like a dude, right? I'm like, I'm like a dude. Um, but I was also terrified of having to touch them. And so Marlowe was like the perfect figure because it assured me that I was like sexually capable and desirable, but like didn't actually have to do any of the sex. Um, and like that is sort of sense of what it means to be a man or what's possible in it, it just feels both very off the shelf and very sad. It's very impoverished. And I just, you know, I, and I remember feeling some version of that for so long. And it just, um, it just bums me out, man. Uh, you know, I think there's a sense about sex when you're a kid. I used to tell this to the camp kids sometimes because it's something I really wish somebody would have told me. There's this, this sense that you have that I had about sex and sort of all the aspects of sexuality when you're that age that everybody else already knows. There's some secret that you're just mm -hmm. not in on yeah. and that you got to know how to do stuff. You know, it's like, um, and that uh, if you don't have that knowledge already, you're so far behind and you have to just pretend that you know and never do anything with anybody because otherwise they'll find out. And I just like, that is not just with sex, but with life. That is such a toxic approach. It's so horrible, you know? Like, you know, it's like the same reason that I didn't want to dance when anybody was looking back then. And the truth about dancing and about sex and about everything is that it's just that the key is not being good at it. Yeah. 
it's not, there's no secret knowledge. You just have to want it. I desperately wanted to figure it out around that age, too. And what I came up with was that both people needed to be able to do the splits. And then you'd uh, both sit on the floor doing the splits. And then you'd creep up to each other <laughs> and, yeah. and parallel each other in the splits. And that was sex. Well, that's what I do now. Oh, awesome. Good. <laughs> it's <Are> great. You, <laughs> I, so can you... Oh, I was just going to say, but it's interesting to hear you talk not just about the splits. Uh, but... When you talk about like everybody having a secret knowledge of something, I am really impressed. We talked about it in part one of this episode, hearing Dave Kajanik read a story uh, from around the same time and feeling just that the writing was so advanced. The way that you lead into the, the where is it, the way you give me the background of the character, the detail, uh, is actually qu quite advanced. I, I mean, I couldn't have written this. No way. Uh, when, yeah. at, at that age. So I'm wondering... Because writing the way you described it earlier, you're writing by yourself, you have baseball on in the background, you're in a closet. I'm wondering if, if you can talk a little about like how much freedom you've like did you feel free to try here? Like in that same way? Like did did you have the same I guess what I'm saying is did you have that same concern about writing in art or did art feel more free? Like you didn't have to know the answer. Well, I don't know. I, it's an interesting question to consider because it's hard to put myself back into how it felt that I, I don't think I can quite remember because I do think that it felt like free and secret and but all the ideas that I think I was going towards are seem so um, deeply posed, you know, uh, and I'm sure that's true for anybody in some sense when they're starting out writing, but I, I just there is um, there is a a, a quality of um, falsity that uh, it, I don't, I, I'm not going to be able to articulate this well, that um, I, I, it still makes me uncomfortable to read, you know. Um, and I also just was very mystified in reading this again with this sort of uh, it, its own relationship to irony because the premise that spam is the locus of a vast international conspiracy seems to be ironizing a very familiar type of story, right? That, and, and in my memory, I think that's what it was. Yeah, where did that come from? I'm curious where that came from. Well, I, I think that it was just, um, you know, that there was this primal story that I um, was drawn to then in its most sort of you know, uh, mass culture forms, James Bond and uh, all that stuff uh, that had a relationship to my own life that I didn't understand at that time. And um, that uh, I um, uh, had an impulse to sort of satirize or look at from the outside, but I didn't know how to do it. So like this premise is essentially satirical. But the whole book <laughs> doesn't have a giggle in it. It's just like played so straight. So there is like the bearish shadow of this impulse to stand outside a, a set of off the shelf cultural ideas, but just being so deeply um, enmeshed in them that it just is not possible to have anything to say about them. It's interesting. Did, did you? feel like you were writing this for yourself or did you picture an audience? Because that would change how mm. enmeshed you'd be in that relationship, right? Yeah, I think that um, I pictured like an ideal reader of some kind who would like read it and think I was cool and like picture me as they were reading in a trench coat. So there was there was an audience there. There was a there was a, there was a trench coat audience. Yeah, I think it's, I, it's I, I hard get... to make fun of that. Then do you know what I mean? Like it, it it would be hard to turn that turn that around if that was part of your goal. And spam sounds it's like a silly concept, but it isn't. If you I mean based on everything you just said about sort of posing. Uh, performing masculinity. I mean, spam is America's favorite meat imposter. It is which, so true. If you were to write the chapter of your memoir that's about those years, could be called Meat Imposter. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very deep reading. It's true. <laughs> Just a quick aside. Like, how did you? How do you think you got to Tibet? 
Like, what was that? Where did that come from? It was Tibet, right? Yeah, man. Dude, I was going to a hippie, a hippie okay. junior high in the 90s in Southern California, I man. Don't, I don't know you anything could, about that. So yeah, yeah dude, well, there's like seven pictures of the Dalai Lama <laughs> in every classroom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There, there's like Tibetan peace flags. Got it. Uh, Got just it. like, like, like binding every doorway. It's, it was very much. Those free Tibet stickers, I mean, you. good luck rear-ending a car in Santa Barbara in 1991 that didn't have one of those on it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. But, but to go off <laughs> that, though, you're, and I know this about you now, you, you ended up going to college, you majored in history, mm-hmm. uh, you've long had a fascination, which I think we'll get to in a little bit, talk about some of the stuff you've been working on now and yeah. your own interest now, but it seems even at this age that you were thinking about history in a way, again, I wasn't at that age thinking about any of this stuff. Not only did I not know about it, but I wasn't interested in it. Maybe for my own reasons, like you were talking about, I didn't think it was cool to be part of it, I didn't think it was cool to know this stuff. But you haven't only created a story here, you're tying it into these historical um, events and places and locations that suggest, like, research and knowledge were you growing up like through school but also through family or like how how were you how did you know about the world oh man i because that i was that kind of nerd you know there's different flavors but i was (laughs) i was the kind who like like read the los angeles times every morning you know had like you know things to say about the 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 paul songus campaign you know like I, i was that guy uh and you know i think that that i grew up in a family of uh activists and, you know, politically oriented people. Um, so that certainly was part of it. But then uh, even beyond that, I mean, I guess we can talk more about this later or something, but, um, you know, my grandfather was in the CIA. He was in the early CIA. And uh, I um, didn't have a relationship with him because he was an asshole. Uh, and he was sort of the, the great absent villain in my family. My dad had stopped speaking to him in the 60s, and he, um, but he was, you know, like bros with the Shah of Iran. He ghost wrote the Shah of Iran's autobiography, Mission for My Country. And um, so he was both part of the vast international conspiracy that actually existed in the 20th century, but he was also this sort of um, mysterious absence around which much of the existence of my family was organized around and he was sort of the the key to the map of like you know why my father was um not always emotionally available or even around you know it was just the the sort of primordial family stuff was all tied up with this geopolitical stuff in the cold war in a way that um i think i'm still trying to sort of sort through so was he? Was your grandfather? Was he involved with like the overthrow of Mossadegh in the fifties and like yes. the, So he well, so, he, so those really are conspiracies. I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he um, he was uh, he was his first posting was to Burma, um, and he was involved. I believe. I mean, he didn't tell anybody he was in right, the CIA, right. but I believe that he was involved in this sort of uh, splinter army from uh, Chiang Kai-shek's force that was operating in northern Burma, and they were sending him back into communist China to try to, like, create a diversionary campaign during the Korean War. And then he wasn't actually uh, involved in overthrowing Mossadegh, but he um, went to Tehran right after that and okay. was there for 10 years. And, uh, you know, he was in Indonesia. He was supposedly a visiting professor at Kent State when those people got shot there. Uh, he's just, like, the, he's, the, he's the boogeyman. He's the, he's the Z-Lig of Cold War yeah. So, and Vinny, how much of that did you, I mean, was this like a, I think in my own writing, I write, I don't want to call it an obsession, but I write toward this uh, familial history in yeah. my life um, that was all about my father's escape from Iraq that was never talked about. So sure. there's this thing that was hanging over us. I knew a very little bit, but it's never been directly addressed. At this age had your parents or did you have any real knowledge or is this stuff you're kind of picking up through your psyche and sort of like bringing up no i i knew the 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 bones of the story i didn't know as much as i do now but yeah i knew most of what i just said to you you know but i didn't uh i didn't understand the sort of emotional weight of that i didn't understand that you know the reason you 
are drawn to that stuff and write about that stuff in your own case is you're, you know, because you want your dad to love you, you know? Uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Your dad does love me. <laughs> he does love you. Well. No, but it's the same thing. I mean, you know, like my dad came from this broken, horrible family. His mom was great, but his siblings all had tremendous struggles, and he did too. And, you know, it's just like anybody that comes out of that environment, he had a hard time being in a family of his own. I think he dealt with it pretty well, but doesn't, you know, like your dad too, like was a great dad in a lot of ways, but nobody's dad is as emotionally available as they wished that he was. I mean, at some level, you know, you get to be middle-aged and you think, oh, that's what it is. I'm trying to figure out why my dad didn't love me. And then I assume that in like another 15 years, I'm going to realize that it's just like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out why I don't love myself. You know, you just keep going deeper and deeper toward the core. And the core is just that like human life is chaos and we all loathe our essence and at some deep level. We will be sure to have you back in 15 years to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so, just, so just a quick follow-up on that. So how do you think knowing about this grandfather of yours, who really was, sounds like this sort of certain kind of male archetype, Yeah. do you think that played into your sort of like... Well, I actually you know, don't think he was that kind of trench coat wearing masculine okay. male okay. archetype. I think okay. he, he was sort of a... Smoky back room. I think he was sort of a probably on the autism spectrum very okay. awkward so like he, I don't he was not like the kind of spy that you see in James Bond although I think maybe I imagined him more that way I, okay. I don't know okay I was going to say too one thing that's interesting to me um, and I think is relevant is you know when I'm reading applications for the Young Writers Studio uh, so many of them are, are from girls um, so but there are many from boys many of the boys who are applying are um, are writing are writing fiction that does have a lot of action, mm -hmm. drama, uh, bravado, um, all that kind of stuff. Dialogue, where that sort of um, that sort of m certain version of masculinity is very present. Mm. And I'm just curious. Like, I think it comes from film. I think it comes from the urge at that age to like, you, you know, you're a writer, but you got to prove that you're not like a wimp or something yeah. so you can't so writing about emotions and family and memory and relationships is sort of really hard to do or maybe boys don't feel comfortable doing it and so they sort of so this is kind of where they start you know it's like a, it's like a gateway yeah well it's interesting I mean you know like I, I don't know I'm curious what you guys both think about well I'm usually hear what you say about that Dave I mean to me it's like um, it's not simply that I didn't know how to write more emotional things and didn't have those tools. It's also like that that felt dangerous. Like mm -hmm. it, you know, so much of our culture is oriented around this sort of, uh, you know, Sly Stallone idea of what it means to be a man. And I don't think that at this age I had any critique of that or any awareness that I had a critique of it. I just had a desire to embody it so that everybody would know that I was cool. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I think that yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how. I, I mean, you grew up in very different circumstances and with a very different relationship to masculinity than I did, Dave. Like, how does that look to you? Well, I want to say one thing first is, I'm, given the context of what we're talking about, this is you in the eighth grade. Yeah. So I'm reading off the back cover of this book that has these lists of people <laughs> possibly involved in the spam conspiracy. And it's not in alphabetical order, so I'm going to read some of them that one gives way in your mind in the eighth grade to the next. Jimi Hendrix gives way to Hitler, gives way to Lucy and Desi Arnaz, gives way to Bogart, gives way to Churchill, gives way to Picasso. That is not a canned, prepackaged no. vision of anything. Like <laughs> that, that, is, that is you, Vinny. It's a poem. Oh. <laughs> well, thank, you, you, thank you for pointing that out. I'm impressed you knew who those people were. Yeah. 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 But oh. to answer the question, I, I think, and one thing this whole podcast has made me realize, and this is something... I wish I could go back and tell myself then is I think we all have this idea when we're young and in our teens that at some point your brain gets exchanged for a better brain. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? An adult brain. Mm -hmm. yeah. But what's so beautiful and special that you don't know until you're older looking back is you're already you. I mean, the, 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 uh, the versions of us that wrote these stories, it's, they're still us. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to care about yourself and be a friend to yourself so much more when you're in the 8th grade or the 11th grade because you're already who you are, who you're going to be. Yeah. And you're given stewardship of that. 
And we push so hard against that when we're young, and then we realize, oh, I should have been taking better care of myself all along because I don't get given a new self. I don't get given a new brain. There's not like a reset. There's no, yeah, there's no reset. You are already you. Now I do want to invent a time machine, in spite of all the dangers. (laughs) I really, I yeah, because that is beautiful, man. I I I needed to hear that so badly when I was young. But I think if you told me that when I was thirteen, I would have. been devastated. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but but inside of that is the promise of growth rather than exchange. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Which is the beautiful thing. But it's wild too because that 13-year-old is still in there today. Yeah. And, and you, seem, you, you can access that. Yeah, and you seem to have a very close connection with him. Like you, you know, you, I mean, not that, <laughs> no, not that you're like him, but you, no, when, I, when asked what that person was like, what he was feeling, you seem to have a pretty good conduit. Like you remember. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, you know, it's funny, it's, I, I mean, those are deep feelings we have at that age. They're so deep. Um, and they do haunt us forever, you know, uh, it, or give us something to grow, uh, to grow upon forever, mm-hmm. you know? Like, absolutely, man. But you need practice somehow, and I don't know what kids do who don't read. I don't know mm-hmm. where they wrestle with these things in a way that's outside of the particulars of their own lives. Yeah. My kid it plays a lot of D and D. Oh, that's wonderful. Which is I mean, like um, so it yeah. is a type of writing, but absolutely. it's verbal. World, world you know? building, yeah, world absolutely. building, yeah. and, and pra- they they will work out problems they have in real life through their characters. Sure, <laughs> it's like it's like training in ethics. Yeah, know, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. I, so going off that, I have a question, which is: so here you are reading Spam, uh, yeah. written by eighth eighth grade Vinny, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so when you look at this and you think about the stuff you're working on now or something that you're thinking about working on in the future, what overlaps do you see? Well, it's interesting, Dan, because I, I was, when I read this, I um, was like, whoa, like, in a lot of ways, the novel that I've spent many, many years working on and that I have abandoned now is, uh, but I spent 10 years working on this novel that is essentially the same story, but with a sort of more active relationship to its uh, own irony and to its kind of source waters. Um, and so I thought one thing that we might do, and I could talk more about what I'm working on right now, uh, or at least thinking about, but one thing I thought we might do is just read the first paragraph of that novel. Yes, oh, yeah. please. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a great idea. Wonderful connection. Yeah. And Vinny, you and I were really mind-melding there. <laughs> yeah. That's what I like. That's what we get for all the summers and birds. Is it man. secretly embedded? In, oh, is it, par, is it part of... Yeah. Uh, oh. So this is a novel. Uh, novel's now called The Sparkling Cave. And just for the uh, for the listeners, you know, it, it is in your collection. Of, it's, it's included in your collection of stories in the absence of predators. The first section of it is... is as what what are we what is it called? There? First section of it was called Fauntleroy's Ghost. Oh right, okay. And it's uh, it was originally a short story, Great. and the premise of the story and then the novel involves the idea that there is this mysterious movie producer named Ernesto Fauntleroy, <laughs> and he uh, is a figure of myth and mystery, uh, and he has been absent from the stage for many years. He disappeared into the ether. And there's a lot of rumors about him, but the rumor that sort of begins to gain purchase in the novel is the idea that prior to coming to Hollywood, he was a gun runner in Africa. And during that time, he came into possession of the only existing film of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, (laughs) the first democratic leader of the Congo, who was deposed after 10 weeks in power in a CIA adjacent coup by the by um, Mobutu, and uh, was killed. But the circumstances of his death have never been clearly established. Um, and so the premise of the of the novel is that Ernesto Fontelroy may or may not have come into possession of this film, and in order to protect himself, he went to Hollywood and chose to hide it in plain sight by inserting it a few frames at a time throughout his oeuvre of movies Whoa. that he made over decades. Um, I apologize for laughing, Vinny. It was, the, it, was the, it was the incredible sort of string of connections that I found <laughs> well, surprising. But it sounds very serious. Well, so here is another. Sense. So the, 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 yeah. the, the novel begins with um, a uh, writer of historical fiction who has sort of washed out of that career and is attempting to sell out 
by going to Hollywood with a biographical screenplay about Leon Trotsky. And this is a novel that I started before I had myself sold out and gone to Hollywood. <laughs> so it's a really strange uh, Ouroboros. It was of, Oracle. Yeah. But this is, the, this is how it begins. And I think you may notice some similarities <laughs> to the beginning of Spam. <laughs> Stucky was not a screenwriter by trade, but the market for historical fiction was poor and it seemed incredible that no one had ever made a biopic about Trotsky. Trotsky was the perfect Hollywood subject. History had conspired to preserve his innocence. Not uniformly, of course. He had commanded the Red Army in the Civil War and declined to flinch from the harsh realities of command. Whole villages loyal to the whites were slaughtered. Pregnant mothers hacked to bits, children set afire, as a utopian theoretician, it must have been terrible for him. One imagines Trotsky on a visit to the front, alone in the small hours in a field tent on the steppe east of Saratov. October, snow on the ground, a bitter wind bringing word of winter from Siberia. Trotsky sips a vodka and allows himself a rare moment to reflect. For the most part, one must press relentlessly ahead. But now the camp is quiet and his generals are all asleep. Sleep comes easily for them. The burden rests with Trotsky. Yesterday he rode past two soldiers raping a corpse in a ditch by the road. The world cannot be remade in a tidy fashion. None of this was in Stucky's script. In Stucky's script it was Trotsky alone who had not been fooled by Stalin, who had stood up to the tyrant when everyone else was forsaking the revolution to save their own skins. It was Trotsky alone who rose to give truth a voice as his comrades wilted on all sides. He did so caring nothing for his own life, which would first be made wretched and then end at last in violence. He must have known in advance how the whole thing would play out. This was the stuff of Hollywood. Hollywood loves a martyr. <laughs> Amazing, I mean, it's, amazing. It's a hyperfixation, right? I mean, we, we get to see directly into Vinny's hyperfixations, which are like, which are historic in a way, but also this like lone man. Yeah. Um, and, and these relationships that don't quite like match up. Mm. Well, and I think like by the time I wrote that, which, you know, I started probably 2007, eight, nine, uh, I had come to understand what I was satirizing. Right. But the, the, the novel is literally about a fiction writer who understands what he's satirizing, but only halfway, because he still thinks he can sell out with a screenplay about Trotsky. And obviously, he gets down to Los Angeles, and nobody wants a screenplay <laughs> about Trotsky. And then he stumbles into this... Yeah, unbelievable. The mystery. Of... He, stu he stumbles into this conspiracy that may or may not be real oh. with Ernesto Fauntleroy and the Lumumba film... But Fauntleroy is this character who has disappeared, this boogeyman, Zelig of the Cold War, this mm. absent shadow around which the novel is organized. And I wrote the whole thing for 10 years without ever realizing, oh, it's, yeah. That's my grandfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I never I, thought about it. That's so interesting and probably it. so common. I feel like I've. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. like your grandfather's in spam too. Yeah, of course. Because that's the primal thing, you, you know. You described him as a villain and the one of, you know, the first descriptions of the second character was as a villain. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I feel like yeah. Connie would say that your grandfather is he's a key figure for Well, you. that's the yeah. thing, man. I mean, that's that's what I realized years after Connie said that to me. But that's maybe how you learn it. Maybe that's sort of how you learn this kind of stuff is you have to just find your way to it really slowly over time and I guess. I mean, I yeah. think probably everybody finds it at their own speed, and some people find it at a much younger age, and that's for better or worse. I don't know. I mean, so now I sort of feel, I do feel, like, I mean, I have my Hollywood work that I pay the bills with, some of which is great and I feel really passionate about. Um, but I think that the big project for me in some ways is trying to write a book about my grandfather, which I've started several different times, and I just, I'm not sure I know how to do it, but I'm trying to figure it out, and... You know, there may even be another layer to peel back beyond that, as I was suggesting, and that's not really what it's about at all. Um, but it does seem to be in this continuum of some kind that I'm sort of stumbling my way through, or maybe I'm not. I, I, I don't really know, and I don't know. 
you know, I think that it, it's been a couple of years since I realized, oh, I got to write a book about my grandfather. But the levels of avoidance and emotional baggage and mm-hmm. not knowing how to do it uh, implicit in that whole project um, are, are much, much harder to contend with than I realized they would be sort of four or five years ago when I first began to come come around to it, you know? Um, but so. in a way, you but you have been writing it. You've been writing it really well, you know, for, for a long time. Well. I mean, it's, it's, I mean... That piece you read was beautiful. I mean, it was, so what, what amazes me is, like, you take spam, and then you just bring in intelligence and a sophistication in the sentences yeah. and, and sort of, like, all, the, all of the equipment and the vision and the perspective that you need to be able to write that story that you're writing uh, was all there. It's, I mean, it's not all here, but it's like, it's like everything came in and, and sort but, of... Uh, the I don't know, I'm not, art- I'm not articulating. No, the audacity's there, though. Yes, That's yeah, the yeah. through line. Yeah. It's sort then, of like without a net kind of uh, yeah. audacity. Right, and then suddenly all the all the, the relationships and the sophistication and the sort of perspective I, seem to come in. I will, I, will say, say. I, I will say the audacity is there, and, and, you know, maybe this is hard because you have a very distinct voice uh, when you when you read. But something that feels consistent to me is that you've also been writing in a voice and style on the page that is, has, has some pretty clear similarities, um, which is, I think, really fascinating to think about. Like, yes, maybe the sentence structure has evolved, but even in spam, uh, something we had talked about in part one of this with Dave is somebody who's working in TV in Hollywood, the sample that Dave read, read from when he was a younger writer um, didn't have one big part of TV and film writing, which is dialogue. Mm. You gave some backstory, you built up the tension and the the kind of knowledge of the character motivation, and then you had scenes not just of dialogue, but you had dialogue tags, you had action tags, stuff that, I again, I wouldn't have been thinking about when I was that age. And then as you read the beginning of the novel, there's a similarity of like kind of a distanced perspective focusing in on this character and, and sort of zooming in, zooming in, zooming in. So structurally and vocally, there's actually quite a lot of similarities. And I mean that in, in the best way possible. I'm not yeah. suggesting you like haven't progressed <laughs> no, as no. a writer. I just, I, I, that I find really surprising. Well, yeah, I didn't get to the part in the novel where, uh, where, where somebody says, there's two ways we can do this. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was the part of the novel which is uh, yeah. where, where you say, you got to hit it. Well, it's hard. hard. Oh, yeah, I love that. Because that's in here. That's in here, yeah. too. I mean, one of the things, Vinny, I'll say is, you know, anyone who knows you knows that you're really an astonishing storyteller. I mean, when you tell stories that are oral stories, when you tell a simple anecdote, when you tell a longer story, um, they're some of the best stories that are ever told by anyone. I mean, I think oh, you're really well known for that. It's one of the things we love about you. And so, I mean, clearly, like... Like Danny said, you know, you kind of had that really early. I mean, I don't know where it came from. I don't know if you're developing it, but like, not everybody has that, man. Well, That's a pretty nice amazing thing. I mean, you know, you could tell a story. I'm pretty sure about like what happened on the way over here from from wherever you were, and it would be uh, it would be similarly sort of dramatic and intense and interesting and funny. And would end, and we would all be laughing and sort of crying a little too. Well, that's really beautiful <laughs> thing for you to have said. I mean, unfortunately, much of the rest of this book contains like scenes where he flies from Prague to Buenos Aires oh, to yeah. like go to the library and learn something that uh, you know he probably could have even then found <laughs> in the like library the in Prague. It's very much like that. Can you read the last paragraph? Oh, that's, yeah, that's okay. a, that'd be a nice way to finish. Oh, okay. Things slowly died down once the new government was set up. (laughs) The CIA, completely gutted after the disclosure of their role in the conspiracy, became the government's witch-hunting organization, weeding out spam conspirators for 50 years after the Times article ran. Several attempts were made on the life of Brooks MacArthur. They were all unsuccessful. He died quietly in his mountainside chateau in Idaho, the victim of a massive coronary. Brooks MacArthur was 83 and was survived by his Labrador, Newt. <laughs> that's, that's it. Beautiful. Oh, man. Oh, my uh, God. Uh, I, I thought it was going to end with parentheses. 
I love you, Grandpa. I have just two very quick questions uh, that I want to have just in... in um, knowing you the way I do, something that I find really fascinating about both the novel and even hearing you read spam, uh, writers that I know we both love, Bolaño, Leonard Michaels, um, hearing you read spam and then thinking uh, about uh, the, the Trotsky idea, I was thinking a lot about Viva La Tropicana, yeah. that Leonard Michaels story. Um, were you someone at this age that was reading, you were talking about noir, Yeah. but did when you came either to the workshop or later and you found some of these writers that were trying kind of similar things, um, did that give you permission? Uh, are there writers now that you go back to uh, all the time uh, to kind of recharge uh, your own writing? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the novel... The novel has two sort of parallel storylines. One is the one I described, following the fiction writer who comes to Hollywood, stumbles onto the conspiracy. The other one follows Trotsky, uh, and you know Trotsky in real life was killed by a KGB assassin in Mexico City in 1940. But in the novel, he um, survives that attack and uses an opportunity to fake his death, and he gets a bunch of weird plastic surgery and just goes to. Havana and then spends decades just like playing the ponies and going to brothels and getting drunk and he sort of experiences the relief of not being Trotsky any longer and for e but anyway so there's these two parallel storylines and for each of them there was very very specific source material that I would go back and read when I needed to catch the sound of the voice again mm -hmm. and um, for the front story section it was that exact short story that you oh, just wow. mentioned, Viva La Tropicana by Leonard Michaels, mm. which is an incredible story. And Leonard Michaels, uh, as Stephen knows, as one of me and Danny's absolute favorites, he's just this underrated megawatt genius. Um, and his collected stories is one of the greatest books in our language. Uh, and then the, the, um, the Trotsky sections are very specifically, the source material is this Donald Bartlemy story called Captain Blood, which is about the the life of a pirate. Um, okay, and then one final question I thought could be interesting since you're both here. Um, so, Dave and Vinny, you both worked uh, on a television show um, that Dave was a showrunner for and a creator for. It's called The Terror. Um, and Dave, uh, some folks listening may not know sort of how um, TV and Hollywood works, but I know that as a showrunner, you would be reviewing scripts by folks. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about, we've heard... Uh, your own writing, we know kind of things you've been doing now. We've now heard from some of the stuff that Vinny was writing and is writing now. When you came to Vinny's work, what, 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 what did he send you? What did you see in the writing? Yeah, good um, question. I have an answer. Yeah. <laughs> so Vinny's uh, agent sent a writing sample that was a script about carnival workers. It was a pilot, and. I read it and I was so excited to meet Vinny because there was, I knew that the show was in a lot of ways going to be about decoding masculinity. I mean, it's about 130 sailors who go missing in the Arctic. Uh, and when we met, you had a kind of, you had a real kind of prickly relationship with that, with that pilot for some reason. And I asked you, what would you have me read? Because I, I always want to be sensitive to the fact that in, in L.A., a rep might send you something without even having asked the writer. And I would rather know what the writer would have me read instead of a agent. And so you said, well, can I give you a chapter from my book? And so that's when I was like, oh, this, this guy has to be at the table. And it was at one chapter from the novel that had Trotsky in Cuba. And there was a monkey. Was it, is there, there was a monkey, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that you're telling a story, Dave, because it's completely untrue the way you're telling it. <laughs> it is it. It is it. Well, how, what's your version of it? My version of it is that uh, you read the script and were sort of like, meh. And then... Did I tell you this? Yeah. I did? Yeah. Uh, and uh, then our mutual friend, Gina, who you had worked with before, was sort of like, no, you really, you should take a look at this guy. I, he's good. And uh, so I called you, or you called me, and you were like, I, you know, I read that script, and, you know, I mean, it's fine, but, like, I, you know, do you have anything else you could send me? And then I sent you the part about uh, 
Trotsky <laughs> and the monkey. Uh, which, by the way, I just want to say that part is like directly based on this uh, experience that my grandfather had in Burma because he his first post in CIA was to Burma, and he took the whole family with him. Uh, and they lived in Burma in Rangoon for a year and a half, and they had this pet monkey, this pet monkey named Willie. <laughs> and uh, Willie, like all monkeys, loved shiny things. So he would go out every day during the monsoon season and steal the windshield wipers off of my grandfather's car. And he collected them up on the roof. <laughs> and so my grandfather would come out to go to work and discover that he had no windshield wipers with the monsoon falling. And my dad, according to my dad, huddle with his brothers at the window and watch. Because already, my dad was seven, eight, they hated his father. Uh -huh. They hated him. And Willie, when he saw my grandfather try to turn the car on, and he would come to the edge of the roof. He had this collection of windshield wiper blades on the roof, and he would come to the edge with the two new ones <laughs> and wave them in the air and taunt my grandfather. My grandfather would stand in the rain going, oh, Willie, Willie, I'm gonna fix your wagon good one day. And my father's brothers were delighted because they <laughs> hated my grandfather already. And so that, that sort of account of Trotsky and the windshield wiper blades and the monkey is the thing that I sent you. Mm -hmm. And did you know at that point, Dave, that there was going to be a monkey in the terror? Yes, I did. But that's not why. Oh. That's not why I thought, I need a monkey man. Well, I just want to say that, <laughs> uh, I, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with Hollywood, there is approximately one person in Hollywood to whom you could send that <laughs> wacky-ass Trotsky and a monkey section of your very weird novel and have him be like, oh yeah, that's it. Let's, let's hire that guy. Oh my God. And uh, I was remembering the other day that I had that phone conversation with you and then I came in for a job interview and when I walked into the room for my job interview, you hugged me which I'd never met you before. <laughs> and uh, I just, you know, I just, it was such a gift. I'd just gotten to Hollywood. It was my second job. And I, it, it, that job made me feel like, oh, this might be a life that I could actually live. And it's kind of never gotten that good again. But I just, such, <laughs> it was so beautiful to, 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 to work with you on that show and with the group of people you put together. And it was just... I wouldn't have hugged you if I had had a tepid response to your sample. Yeah, I'm going to say. Maybe you Who's story, whose version do you believe? I believe that you hugged him, and that that after re after reading Vinny's work, you would want to give him a hug. I can see that. You probably could have just told him the story about the monkey in Burma, and he would have hired you. <laughs> it has everything you need in there. Well, it's so funny because it also, I, like to me, I'm just thinking telling it. It also has this sort of layers of emotional understanding that I didn't have before, and I mm. maybe have now, maybe don't. Because, like you know, at, at the when my dad used to tell that story when I was a kid, it was just always a funny story. It was just funny, you know? It was hilarious. You know, my, my grandfather was such a clown in the story. But, like, now that I'm a father myself and I have a seven-year-old child myself, a boy, the idea that a kid that age would hate yeah. his father yeah. that way already is so uh, just devastating. Yeah. Like yeah. something specific has yeah. to happen to cause that. God, yeah, 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 and it's got to be so deep. It's got to be so deep. And you can imagine what it would feel like now that you're a father, too. Well, I can't, is the thing. Well, you can't, but uh, I mean, maybe it's more terrifying, yeah. Yeah. Um, Benny. Yes. So today, what are you working on? Well, I'm working on a bunch of different things. You know, I am, by fits and starts, and without making any great progress, I am working on this book about my grandfather, but not enough. I also have a bunch of TV projects that I'm working on, and I'll just mention a couple because they involve Iowa and some of the brilliant people I met here. I'm uh, helping my friend Tom Macker uh, adapt his memoir about getting sober at a halfway house outside Baton Rouge when he's 18 years old. It's an incredible book, um, the best book I've ever read about getting sober. Uh, what was the book called? Halfway. And that's also what the show's called. Uh, he and I are writing it together, and we have not sold it yet, but we hope to sell it soon. It's really good, I think. Awesome. And then I'm also working on um, a project that is untitled yet, but that uh, I'm doing with my um, friend Mark Leidner, who um, is a brilliant poet from Iowa City. 
uh, where's that from? I was saying, but I met him here, and I worked with him at the Young Writer Studio, and uh, he wrote a very low-budget independent movie a number of years ago that's kind of terrific and has some bonkers ideas in it. It's sort of a body swap thing. Um, it's sort of a, anyway, it's really great. Um, so I'm working on that with him. And I have some other projects too, but those are some of the things I'm doing. Excellent. Amazing. Vinny Wilhelm, thank you so much for being on Sad Me in the Past. Oh, thank you guys. It's really intense, I gotta tell you. Support for this podcast comes from the University of Iowa, the Maggot Center for Writing, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the Graduate College. We'd like to thank the Center for Language and Culture Learning for use of their podcast studio. Sad Me of the Past is part of the Writing University Podcast Network at the University of Iowa. This network includes podcasts from creative writing programs and departments all across our campus. Visit writinguniversity.org forward slash podcasts to see our full list of offerings, including Writing Matters, The 11th Hour, Origins, The Short Coat, and more.